Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is documentary filmmaker Claudia Sparro. We will discuss Maxima, her documentary. Claudia was born and raised in Lima, Peru. Her American Film Institute film El Americano won a 2009 Emmy Award in the drama category, and she was a recipient of the 2009 Franklin J. Schaffner Fellow Award from the American Film Institute for that film. Claudia's first feature film, titled I Remember You, starring Stephanie Butler and Joe Edgender, premiered at the 2015 Downtown Film Festival Los Angeles, where it won the Best Feature Length Dramatic Film Award. I Remember You had a theatrical release in 2016 and remains available on major streaming platforms. Today, we're going to talk about her first documentary, Maxima. Claudia, welcome. Hi, Elena. Thank you very much for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Tell us in a nutshell, rather than me describing the documentary, why don't you tell us what Maxima is about, if you would? Of course. So uh, Maxima tells the story of this really extraordinary woman and activist who is from the Peruvian Andes, who is standing up to the largest gold producer, producer in the world, which is Newman Mining Corporation. And she's standing up to them in defense of her rights and land and resources that hundreds of thousands of people depend on. And I think the film really is a representation, uh, I would like to think, of the fights that activists all over the world are, are facing um, and, and the challenges that they, that, you know, what, what the struggle that it is to just fight for your rights and for social justice. She... Her name is Maxima Acuna, is that right? That is correct. So she and her family are living on their land. It's a, it's a type of subsistence farming, is that right? That is correct. So Maxima is a farmer. Um, she and her family um, have lived in the Andes farming for forever. And so these are people who... Um, you know, they, they live off their land, they raise animals, they also work on handmade artisanate. That's how, that's what, that's their livelihood. And they are, in the case of Maxima, she is a woman who cannot, who never, who didn't get the chance to go to school, so she never learned to read and write. So she belongs to a population that is very vulnerable in, in Peru as such. Um, but like you were saying, yeah, she is a she's a farmer. And I say subsistence farming because some people, certainly in the United States, think of farming as something that very large companies do. Agricultural businesses have become big businesses in many places. In many states, they're the dominant agriculture land owners. But in the case of Maxima, we're talking about they're just barely scraping by. Is, is that right? Uh, yes. To, well, to clarify the, the definition of substances farmer, um, it is these are farmers who basically produce enough, uh, enough food to live off. 
So they don't necessarily produce or farm to sell it um, or as a small business is basically substantive farming. Um, they grow the food on the land that they uh, and their families, sometimes their communities need to live off. So that was the case of Maxima. Um, she lives in her land with her family and they mo- they mostly grow potatoes, um, very various different kinds of potatoes in the Andes. Uh, they were also raising cattle, uh, sheep, cows, uh, even trouts, and then they make their own clothing. So she she uses the wool of her own sheep to 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 dress herself and her family. So that was um, how they survive. And then when they sometimes also uh, sell or exchange food with um, the community, and also sometimes she sells items that she makes. This is a tough life. It's a it's a difficult environment. It's up in at a high altitude, and it's not a luxury life. Let's say, right? It is. It is not a luxury life, and but it is very interesting what you pointed out because yes, I think for maybe people like us who come, who, who don't live that life, who, who perhaps, you know, live in, in a city, um, who, you know, we are not make, growing our own food, making our own clothes, you know, it may seem like really, really tough, maybe undesirable, but ironically for Maxima, for her family, for her community, um, that is, th- that is what life is about. Like for them, they have a really close connection to nature, um, to to the land, to water, and for them, n- nothing in a way gets better than that because they, they like being able to support themselves and live peacefully and surrounded by nature. That is, you know, for them, in, at least I can say it um, for Maxima, she she didn't want anything else. She She loves her life. She loves her life. She loves doing what she does. Um, so, you know, that, that's, I guess, where the, the story begins because it's, it's what she is at stake for her in addition of their livelihood of the, the land and the water that they, that they love and that they live off. And if I understood correctly from the film, that they acquired with great effort this wasn't something that was handed down to them. It was something that was effortful for them to procure in order for them to buy the land that they're living on when you when you did the documentary. Is that right? Correct. So the land that they acquired that is basically the source of the dispute with the mining company is land that they had to work for many, many years um, in order to, to be able to acquire it. Um, and I... I I guess I, I should, I could clarify that one thing that it is challenging, like we do have to understand that she does live in the Andes of Peru. So we are talking about about 14,000 uh, feet of altitude. And, it, you know, it, it is, it does have freezing conditions. So, it, and it's not the most accessible. So on that end, yes, uh, they are living in an area that, Again, may not have may not be the most accessible or the most convenient because they also don't have uh, electricity or um, 
or running water, but, but they are surrounded by water at the same time um, but, uh, from natural resources. But yes, they had to work very, very hard many years, uh, Maxima and her husband, Jaime, in order to be able to, to purchase this uh, plot of land so that they could um, be independent. And uh, especially for Maxima, she tells me it, it meant a lot that her kids saw them um, working hard to get to get the land, grow the land, and then um, protect the resources and, and leave them all for, for their next for the next generations. That that meant a lot to to her and her husband. And she certainly is inspirational on camera. Not in the way of a movie star, right? But there's this authenticity that came across, at least to me, as I watched it, and I thought, "Wow, this is this is just so authentic." The 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 feelings that she expresses and the the background that you were able to capture in the documentary just seem so real. What was it like? getting that, accomplishing that? You know, that was uh, actually, um, in a way, quote-unquote, the, the easiest part because it is such a beautiful, majestic land. Um, I personally personally had never been to such just beautiful nature. And, you know, and it's, it's surrounded by these mountains and landscapes and um, lakes, beautiful the, the most beautiful, um, really, uh, lakes that you can just walk and you feel the peace. You truly feel the, 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 the connection that, that they obviously, um, um, you know, are, are, are fighting for. And it, it was just mesmerizing. So for us as documentary filmmakers, it was, the goal was always to, literally capture what we were seeing and so it wasn't hard to capture that beauty and and um this again land and, and, and bodies of water that maxima was working really risking her life in order to protect like you you get it like once you you are there you see it you experience it you you yourself feel like okay i want to do anything i can so that this is not destroyed because the the beauty is so powerful. Like you just don't need words. You just feel it. How did you first hear about Maxima and her plight? Um, I, uh, as you mentioned briefly earlier, I am Peruvian. Uh, however, I've been living in the U.S. for many years. Basically, I, I came to attend college. And so I went in 2016 Maxina wins the Goldman Environmental Prize. Um, for people who no, may not be familiar with it, it's equivalent to the Nobel Prize, but this is for environmental activists. So she wins this award and in 2016, and there is a Peruvian journalist who writes a piece about her case. Um, and that is how I first came across her story. And so I, I was really shocked to learn about her case. But also the fact that I, as a Peruvian, didn't know that this was happening in my country. And then also as somebody who had been living in the U.S. for so many years that, um, you know, that, that this type of abuse could happen at the hands of a U.S. 
transnational corporations. That was a huge eye-opening, I guess, revelation for me. And um, but but it, and it just it really affected me so much. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop thinking about Maxima, um, about this land dispute, what she had been facing since it all started in 2011. So that's but that, that but that was it. It was that a particular art article that I came across when when she won the Goldman Environmental Prize in 2016. And so you, you did you re- decide at that moment that you wanted to meet her or that you wanted to do something about it, make a film? What was that process like? Yes, I I literally couldn't sleep at night. I mean, I had never had this happen to me where like I cannot stop thinking about this woman about her fight. At night, I'm like staying awake thinking there must be something I can do for her. And my focus has always been um, fiction filmmaking. I never like the irony is if you then had asked me if I was ever going to make a documentary, I would have like sworn, you know, with my life, like, no, I'm not. I'm not simply because not not that I don't love documentary films, but it was just never my focus. I'd always been. Um, in this path to the fiction, and that's all I had done. So I, I felt like I, you know, am I even qualified to tell her story? I want to help. I just don't know how. Maybe uh, at the same time, I'm a, I'm a Peruvian filmmaker, and I just felt like there is something I must be able to do to help. So my first instinct was, okay, maybe I'll just do a short film and start there. Um, you know, a, a short documentary and just like, tell her story and hopefully that helps and that's that's how it all started just by wanting to make a short film really and you were in the u.s at the time i was in the u.s exactly and you know i, I was uh, in also in the middle of I, I had like a little slate of projects fiction projects that i was developing about to shoot so you know it, it seemed like oh but it's kind of an inconvenience this is not something i've done before and then i would have to stop the project and you know, I, is it even going to work? So it was, um, I mean, I was also scared. Like, again, I had never done a documentary film before. So I, I was doubting myself, like, I can I even do it, you know, where to start. Um, but this is how much her story impacted me. Like, I just couldn't let it go. And what was it like to meet Maxima? Is, what does she, you know, some people, when you see them, for example, giving a presentation as public speakers, they're very charismatic. And then when you meet them one-on-one, they're disappointing. And some people, it's the other way around. They're very nice one-on-one. And then when they go to speak publicly, they don't come across very well. How is the public maxima, the one that we see in the film, how is that similar or different to the Maxima that you met eventually? Um, you know, Maxima has this very, very, I think, unique, special quality. And I think that is one of the reasons why um, she's become the face of this fight is, is she's incredibly charismatic. Um, she's really eloquent and just, I, you know, she has this, this, again, this quality that you just cannot take your eyes away from her and everything that she says, she's like so sweet and engaging and and just honest, and that comes across immediately. So from the moment that I just that I thought, okay, there's something I could do to 
give this woman's voice a larger platform, maybe making a short film. To the moment where I met her, there were actually six months went by. It was by no means easy to get a hold of her. Um, so it was definitely a process. And finally, finally, when I was able to get to her and she agreed to have us come to her land to just meet and on our end to just do a, a research trip. And I, and I get to meet her in person. You know, she, she welcomes you as if you were family. And, and, and that also it speaks to, um, the, 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 her values, her costumes. Um, she and her family, you know, if you need it, they're going to open the doors to their one room home. And they may not have enough to eat, but they're going to feed you and give you you know, warm clothes and blankets, and that's just who they are. They they, they are, uh, again, this, this community of people who are very um, welcoming and, and, and caring and, and loving, and they are just used to help each other out. Um, so they, they are not materialistic people. Um, so, yes, getting to meet her, you know, I was just in awe of her um, – just very unpretentious and yet she just this she's just this very powerful uh voice and presence and and and, you know physically she's very small she's a very small petite woman so it's again mind-blowing that she has the the the, the strength that she has um you know it's kind of ironic coming from a a small person is is funny ironic I, i guess but she's a force, absolutely, and, and and I think you you get that immediately the, the moment you meet her. You you certainly get that on screen, and that is a contrast to, to this this company com- that is her misfortune to be a neighbor. What can you tell us about that mining company? Um. Um, so I, I wanted to, to also mention that, again, because I was coming from a background of fiction, I was not necessarily somebody active in any social causes or mining or anti-mining. So I really came into this project as, I, as, your, as your average person who just knows, or at least a being Peruvian, I guess, you grew up with this um, idea that, you know, mining is that, – that, Peru depends on mining, that mining is a positive thing, that we have to support it, support it, and also that I was just assuming that everything was properly regulated when it came to operations, and that especially because it was a U.S. company, an international company operating in Peru, that would be a great thing, great thing because it was giving jobs, and they were probably operating at higher standards and all that so you know to me it was again just very 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 tough to learn by following Maxima kind of the the, the reality of what this company how this company had been operating in Peru um, for so many years so just to go back to your question uh, New Moon Mining Corporation is a um, mining company that is based in Denver um, and they started operating the Yanacocha mine in the region of Cajamarca, Peru, uh, back in 1993. And they they have the the Yanacocha mine is the largest gold mine 
in Latin America, the second largest in the world. And unfortunately, as I started researching the mine and the operations, um, you know, I, I just kept on coming across many, many complaints from local communities, from people who over the years had been reporting um, that the operations were unfortunately um, causing environmental issues and you know, there there was a very well-documented mercury spill that happened in 2000, and that continues to this day to cause trouble in 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 the region. Um, you know, and and that unfortunately, because there is Peru is also a developing country that has always been um, affected by corruption to this day that, you know, nobody was checking really um, that, that, that the mining was done properly or as, as agreed. So there was unfortunately a lot of abuse that had been happening um, by, the, by the mining company since they started operations. And that led, all, that led to the land dispute that took place or started with Maxima in 2011. Part of what's astonishing about the story that you share in the documentary is how gargantuan the difference in scale is. Here you have a modest family that is just protecting their land next to this behemoth mining company from one of the most powerful nations in the world. How how did you manage to convey that, and were you worried for your safety? Um, yes. Um, I would be lying if I said I did not. That became very obvious. And before I even met Maxima, you know, I, of course, we wanted to be as objective uh, as, as we could, and so we... I personally also, uh, you know, looked at at the company, like I said, at the history and uh, of their operations, of their behavior. And the most astounding part to me was that all these complaints related to environmental um, crimes, abuses, and also violations of human rights were really, really well documented since they started operations in Peru. Like the data exists. Like if you, you know, you, you do your own research, you are, you're gonna find that information, um, from various resources. But there, you will also, you're also gonna find this trend that is that anytime anybody makes a formal complaint against the Yanacocha mine, you immediately got the same response from the company, which was, um, you know, lawsuits, um, harassment, um, criminalization, um, you know, you, you suddenly um, got um, lawsuits and, uh, and, and this narrative that clearly scared whoever complained and then suddenly this complaint would get dismissed. It will go, uh, you know, maybe to urban courts and then they will settle or the person 
or people who, again, filed a complaint would suddenly decide uh, back down. So what was stunning is that Maxima was the first woman who didn't, didn't let the intimidation stop her. And I think, this is just my personal opinion, I think that is, the company was not expecting that. Because again, they had been operating since 1993. Maxima land dispute starts in 2011. So up until then, um, all the complaints, they either, Janakocha either won in court or all the complaints against them were dismissed. Um, so Maxima is the first one who really didn't let anything stop her, like no amount of criminalization or harassment, um, stopped her. And, I, and again, I think that they were just not expecting that. It was the first time that they were in that position. What were the biggest hurdles that you faced? So once you were stateside and you decided this was something you had to do something about, what were the biggest hurdles that you faced? Um, everything. I am I, I, being very honest. I Everything about making the film was hard. Everything because from from you know first reaching to Maxima to then finding the, the 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 logistics and resources to do it financially and and just from a production standpoint financially because uh, this is a social team documentary um, it, it has definitely uh, a bit of a controversial theme um, at, at least in Latin America there is a very there's a lot of people are very sensitive against mining, any anti, anything that is perceived anti-mining as well. Um, and also I feel like in Latin America, there's not a lot of really conscious about um, the environment or the, 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 the fight that activists, um, the challenges that activists face, especially environmental activists. There's not a lot of conscious about uh, protecting the environment yet. Um, so people like Maxima are, are like really under the radar. Also mainstream don't tend to cover their stories or talk much about their stories. So when it came to financing, um, our best options were, um, in the U.S. because there are more organizations or, or definitely I think more, um, there, there is more conscious about protecting the environment and supporting environmental activists. And so um, we were lucky to, to to find angel investors. We also uh, obviously had to put uh, at the very at the very beginning personal funds. We also did fundraising. But your the the, the typical I guess uh, funding uh, sources that will be grants. Um, I, I you know they we we never got any grants. Even though in, in paper we, we qualified, like for some reason we just never got grants. I, I think because the project was mostly taking place in Peru, but um, it was definitely, definitely very, a very challenging and frustrating process because, um, again, th- th- those were the, the kind of the obvious options for funding, but we were not lucky in getting them. So we really had to think outside the box. And then that was on the on the financing side, on the actual production, like I said, getting to film in Peru, in the Andes, in a very remote area was already challenging. But then on top of that, the mining company um, had 
put security checkpoints surrounding all entry points, basically on every entry point to Maxima's house. So that was extra challenging. So every time we had to go and shoot at Maxima's, we really never knew are we going to be able to get through because we're going to have to go through this security checkpoint that is that was uh, put by the mining company, but there was also Peruvian police there. So that was also um, challenging. And then, you know, we, our equipment, like I said earlier, there is no electricity where Maxima lives. So we had to bring enough batteries to hopefully have them last for the many days that we were going to be there. Um, and it was again remote, completely remote area. There's nothing around but the mine, the mine company. So um, if we needed, like, there was nowhere to go if we, if we needed to, you know, to, to if we needed anything really, or if we got sick. And then at night, um, and, and I'm sorry because I, I think I didn't answer this earlier when you asked, but where I generally felt uh, my life may be at risk was at night because it's pitch dark. We're at Maximus' house. The, the mine is literally over, like we're like on the bottom of a little hill and they're at the top of the hill and they have a 24 hour security, um, you know, checkpoint there, like overlooking down at Maxima's land. And so at night, like I said, there's nowhere to run, there's nowhere to go and it's pitch dark. So if they wanted to come and get us or get the footage, like there was nothing we could have done really. And that's an unsettling feeling, right? Uh, absolutely. Like, I, I realized, oh, my God, like, you know, again, like, that, that was a feeling I remember very clearly from the very first night we were there. And I was thinking, Max, you know, again, this is my first night. This is the reality that Max and her family ha- have had to live with since 2011. And that's that's kind of what they have to face, that, you know, any potential um uh, you know, assault or anything like it's they're in such a vulnerable position um, again. And I felt it. And, and again, I felt I, it was it was definitely scary. And of course, it wasn't just an idea, but there there was a history of violence that is documented well before you made the documentary. Right. Correct. Correct. Um, like I said, there is. The, the information is there. Like there, there are formal complaints uh, of, of harassment, of violence by um, activists or just people from the local community who claim they faced, um, you know, violence at the hands of the, the, the either mining employees or the security employed by the mining company. Um, in in one of the, there are really many. And one that is, I guess, that notorious and we also feature it in the film is when when the mine wanted to expand and create the Conga project, um, there, there were protests uh, against that mine expansion project. And that is when, you know, that there, there, there was there is documentation that uh, shows how, you know, the. the People got shot and there was a minor that was killed and there was definitely violence used towards the protesters. Um, so yes, there, there, there was definitely, um, there are documents that prove that there's been those, that kind of violence.
that that has been you know directed by the mining company what do you think this says to the world at large because this seems to be an issue that isn't just centered in the Andes or even in Peru. Right. This is about much more than Maxima and Jaime and their children and their their land. Or their daughter, I think, was it with their children or was it just one? They have uh, four children. So, yes, they, they have two daughters and two sons. So it's not just about... Maxima, Jaime, and their four children, this is a, a, I'm thinking of it kind of like an iceberg, if you will. It's the part of the problem that we get to see above the water, but it is affecting so many other indigenous populations. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, It is, this is not really a fight. I think this is, or this story represents the fight that many activists, individuals are are facing at the ultimately the hands of larger um, economical powers around the, the world. Um, so it is it is very very unsettling to me. Like I said, as someone who was coming from just being an average person who was not really involved in any of these causes just learning, like seeing the facts, the reports, the studies uh, throughout the years, it, you know, it, it is unsettling. To this day, I still struggle with it. And and we focus in, in Maxima's case. Um, but I, but again, I think this is a representation of a problem that happens everywhere um, way too often. And, and most importantly, I think we don't know about it. Um, I, that, that's the most concerning part. We only get one side of the story and the other side who, who are from these very vulnerable people who, uh, you know, rarely get a chance to, to, to speak up and, and like, you know, talk about their causes and get support. Um, these are the people on the front lines, you know, like, like Maxima, these activists that are risking their lives on a daily basis for resources that ultimately we all need to survive. But there is, again, just like a lack of awareness um, and, and a system that is set up to support this kind of abuses. So definitely is, 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 is concerning. At, at the same time, I think that, you know, it is in our hand. Like there is a lot that we can do. It's just that we just don't, we don't, we don't know that this is happening. After how long did it take you to do the project to from from the idea from the that night that you couldn't sleep until the film was complete? How how many years did that require? Um, right, so it was about three years. We started in 2016, and we finished the film. Basically, uh, had its festival premiere in 2019. So it was about three years, which is not, it's actually very short in terms of a documentary. Um, that said, Maxima's story had started in 2011. So we used a lot of um, archival material from 2011 until 2016. That is when we started documenting um, her, her fight. It also happened, and this was accidentally, that 
you know, we, we went there for our first research trip and literally two weeks after the her legal fight in Peru started unfolding. So in a way, we never stopped recording. Like that was not planned. It's just how it happened. Um, so we 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 were we were able to be with her as she was going to court and and, and getting kind of these final response responses on um, on on the legal side of her fight. And what were the approximate costs overall? Um, you mean for the on our end for production? Yes, yes. So what would you say was under a million or you don't have to give us an exact amount, but just an idea of, of what course. was involved cost wise to make this happen, this three years worth of labor that resulted in Maximo. Right. Uh, definitely uh, under a million for the production of the film. And but, but like I said, like every dollar was um, it was a struggle. They also because everything happened really quickly. We again went for the research trip, and then like I think it was two weeks afterwards that the, this they get a, a date for the for the trial. So we we kind of just we, we never had time to properly fundraise, um, and the options of grants also that are immediate are limited. So th- that was another challenge. We just. Uh, we didn't we didn't have the time to that the clock was ticking. We we just couldn't stop and and fundraise and then shoot. So we just had to go, go, go. So now we're in early twenty twenty two and as I understand it, this issue is still not resolved. Is that right? That is right. Uh that is correct. Um is be, because the complexity of the land dispute and because there are trials now that are ongoing in, uh, I mean, sorry, instead of not necessarily trials, but just lawsuits that are still being resolved in court, both in Peru, but also in the U.S. So um, it is, it, it, we, we always, I'm, I, and I'm talking, I guess, from what I've learned from Maxima and working with, with her team of lawyers, everybody, everybody knows, <coughs> excuse me, that this was not going to be resolved immediately, that it was going to be a, a multi-year process. So um, that, is, that is exactly that. And then with, with the pandemic, of course, everything has been delayed as, as well. What about something like the United Nations? Is there the possibility to appeal to the United Nations if this continues? Is at some point she may not have the resources to continue, a company like this has resources, uh, let's say almost infinite resources. Correct. And that, that's been, um, you know, that, that is why it's so upsetting to, to witness in this fight that, again, you know, is it, it, somebody is really, of course, the David and Goliath. And, yeah, it is very upsetting to know that one, one side has all the resources and the other side is, 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 is really the opposite, you know, yes, struggling to get by. Um, and they, they do have some amazing support from organizations, um, and, and lawyers, both in Peru and the U.S. But, but again, this is also incredibly taxing, um, even just emotional, emotionally, psychologically. 
Um, and I think ultimately, I am afraid that that's gonna be that that may be what affects the family and Maxima the most. Um, is just to live under this constant stress. Um, I, you know, and, and still get harassed by the company. So, um, I, you know, it's, I don't know if the United Nations, um, I, 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 as far as I know, I don't know that they've been, that they've contacted them. I do know that the, her team, um, are doing everything they can to, to look for justice. And I know that her legal team, especially in the U.S., are also looking at all alternatives for appeals. Um, so that, that's where things are at at the moment. Now that you have completed the process, the film is about to be released in at Los Angeles this month, and it's going to be be available on uh, for streaming on demand. Is that right? It is correct. Yes, we're actually going to be um, streaming on Apple TV on January 11th. What's your takeaway? Um, I I think that or I hope that Maxima's story serves as a eye opening to the the reality again of environmental activists fighting for resources that that we all need. But I also hope that Maxima's personal story shows, like it serves as, as, a, as a study case of how impossible these, uh, how impossible these fights are for, for activists when, when they are facing um, an economic power, you know, such such as this uh, mining corporation, um, you know, and I, and I hope that we all can take a moment to think about what we can do um, to, to, to help. And also, and this is maybe just from the, our day-to-day choices, um, you know, and, and that Today is Maxima and these environmental activists, but at the end of the day, these resources are finite. Like there's, there can only last so long. And, and what are we going to do when that happens? And especially it may be Maxima today, but it may be any of us tomorrow. Um, because we are, the system is set up so that we, we lose, you know, that we, our human rights can be taken. In any 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 time, and, and that's just very very scary notion. And in all of this, it may seem that we're perhaps not giving a voice to the gold mining company. Did you make an approach? Did you reach out to them for them to share their perspective and their voice in the film? Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. And, and originally, you know, we, that was the goal that we would have gotten their side as well. So when we contacted them, but they kept sending us to, I mean, they declined a, an interview, um, a video interview. And also they just kept replying by sending us to their, their website where they cite 
all the updates and formal responses to any of the claims that have been made by Maxima and her family. So, um, you know, and we did, we've included as much the facts that we think are relevant when presenting Maxima's case. But yes, it was, um, you know, it, it was their choice not to be interviewed for the for the film. From the filmmaking side of things, you said that this was your first documentary. Now that the process is complete, or certainly the filmmaking part of the process is complete, now it's going out to the public, right? Right. How do you feel? How do you feel about having made the documentary? Would you do it again? Absolutely. And, and this was a life, the, the irony, this was a life-changing experience for me. Like, it was not... I, um, I just, I guess I cannot describe how it's transformed me. It's probably the most important experience, professional experience I, I've had in my life. Um, and ultimately is because, you know, we are telling a story that, um, of course, with, with real people, real issues at stake and that affects so many. And nothing is more, I think, beautiful and powerful than be able to contribute a little bit to that cause. So I hope, I mean, I feel like incredibly honored to have been able to tell Maxima's story. Um, I, I, I also think like she's just such an extraordinary, um, human being. Um, I admire her so much, um, in, in so many ways. And, uh, again, to me, it's been transforming. I hope, I, I, I know that I'm going to do it again. Um, it, but, it, but I think also it, it'll have to be a story that grabs me the, in the same way that Max's story did, where I just literally couldn't let it go. And I know that that will happen, and I'm, I'm, and I'm open to that for sure. I, I, I actually, it, my dream will be to be able to do both documentary and, and fiction. Now, Maxima's story is still happening. Do you think that you're going to go back and document the ending if if the ending is within sight? Or is this something that you've completed and moved on from? No, I couldn't. I, I get this uh, actually question uh, asked often. And while there are no concrete plans at the moment for us to do a follow-up documentary film, I, I you know, I... There's no way I can just let this story go. I think of Maxima on a daily basis. I stay in contact with them. So I do think that if it, if in the future that it would make sense for us to document a, a specific part of her journey, especially if they were going to go into trial in the U.S., I, I think it's very likely that I, I mean, I, I think I will find a way to, to document it. So I, I definitely leave that door open. Even though right now there are no, there, nothing is confirmed for a follow-up film. For our listeners who want to see Maxima, um, it's going to be showing in Los Angeles, January 2022. What is the opening date? Yes, actually, this Friday, January 7th, uh, it's going to be showing at the Cine Lounge Sunset. In Hollywood, and then we are. Um, it's going to be streaming on Apple TV starting Tuesday, January 11th. 
And for those people who are not in Los Angeles and have no Apple TV, where else can they get it? Is there somewhere they can stream it or buy it? Um, yes, um, it's going to be showing on the. Um, it's going to be coming to all other platforms um, starting January 11th. I know that Apple TV starts first, and but I know that it's also coming um, to Vudu, Roku, uh, Tubi. Um, following January 11th. So um, we're going to be posting that on our website uh, or on our social media accounts. But yes, the plan is that it's going to be eventually available on all streaming platforms. And will Peruvians have access to it now that it's uh, becoming public? Um, that is definitely a, um, our one of our main goals. I believe Apple TV is available in Peru, but we're also going to be looking for more specific distribution in Latin America, especially in Peru. And we're hoping, unfortunately, the pandemic, of course, happened, but uh, we also want to be doing in-person screenings when it's safe to do so in, in Peru. What suggestions would you share with our listeners who are motivated to do something similar to this from a social justice perspective. Maybe they're not necessarily filmmakers, but they're passionate about a, an issue such as you were about Maxima. What options are available to them either to support a project as you were looking for funding when you started this or to lead it? What would you share with our listeners in that regard? You know, one of the, the beauties, I think, of um, the, how the, the world's transformed in the past two years in terms of things going more remote is that there there is a lot that you can do from home. Um, there are a lot of wonderful organizations that, you know, depending on what issue you're passionate about, um, they, they are going to give you resources for um, ways that you can donate maybe to a specific cause or uh, – an activist, a group of activists, or they're also film, film organizations where they're gonna, you're gonna see um, lists of films and you can see what the, each film is about that are, is looking for funding. So you can, you know, we, with a click, make a donation or connect with them to get involved in different ways. Um, you know, again, also social media is a very powerful platform. So um, you, by sharing, by talking, about an issue, you are helping um, create awareness substantially. Like we should never underestimate the power that we all have to make change. And, and this is one of the biggest takeaways for me from the film, from just watching what Maxima, um, this, uh, you know, again, this woman, petite woman from such a remote area, um, what she was able to do um, it's just a huge inspiration for, and a reminder that, you know, we all, all have the power to make big changes. And, and, and again, like, there is a lot that we can do just from home, even if you are more orient, political oriented, you know, just making sure that when the time comes that you are supporting maybe a candidate that also supports causes that you care about, um, you know, all that adds, adds up and, um, makes a difference. Also, what organizations you, you know, financially you are supporting. Uh, if they are like a public co uh, company, 
um, look into how they're using those funds. Are they using them to support the environment, human rights? Uh, if not, you know, you can choose to support a different company and, and, and pressure them, pressuring them to, to, to do better. So all, all of that is, as, as consumers, we have a lot of power. Is there a call to action for viewers or, in our case, listeners, people who are listening to our conversation, who watch the documentary and feel that same drive to do something that you did when you made the documentary, people who want to support your efforts to document it and go beyond, um, is that part of the documentary? Uh, yes. So if specifically for Maxima, um, you can go to our website, which is standwithmaxima.com. And we have options in which how you can support Maxima's fight. One of them is signing a petition on change.org. Um, which is to ask Newmonts to stop all the harassment and lawsuits against the family. There is also a GoFundMe uh, campaign that we start for her and her family so that they get enough funds for their livelihood because they haven't been able to work the, the way and, and support themselves the, the way they normally would because of all the or because of all the legal fight that they've been facing and because. As discussed, this is going to be ongoing for many, many years. So there, there is also that option. There, we also love um, partnerships. So, you know, if you're interested in hosting a screen of the film for your school or college or business organization, that's also which we've been doing a lot actually last year, and it's been wonderful. Um, that you know, that's also another way of of supporting the film and creating awareness about. Um, the issues that we've discussed. So yes, um, you know, hopefully you 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 can join us and and contribute however you can. Claudia, thank you for joining us from Ojai, California. Thank you, Elena. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I I really appreciate it. And to our audience, you have been you listening have been to. Documentary filmmaker Claudia Sparrow, who discussed Maxima, her first documentary. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.